welcome to this episode of The Trillist. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing basically making the world a better place. So social justice issues and how we're trying to reform those issues, um, civic engagement and the likes um, here at Penn and in greater society. So on today's episode, I have four lovely guests, all females. Um, could you guys each go around and introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Madison. Um, I'm a sophomore in the college studying gender, sexuality, women's studies, and health and societies. Um, I do a few things with Civic House. I work there, I'm a civic scholar there, and I do community engagement. So I volunteer at this place called Why Not Prosper, and it's a organization that supports formerly incarcerated women. Um, so there I like tutor them in like their GED studies, um, help them like build resumes and stuff like that. And on the other side of things, I do a lot of research. So I research for the Penn Slavery Project and a project called From Cell to Homes that worked with current like women lifers in PA. Hi, I'm Jordan. I'm a junior in the college. I'm studying political science, American public policy, French and Africana, the last three are minors. <laughs> and I do a lot of things on campus as well. Similar to Madison, I'm a civic scholar and all of my volunteering is centered around education and sort of third party or non-traditional ways of teaching. So a lot of trauma-enforced learning. I work a lot with the workshop school, which is very close to Penn's campus at 48th and Locust. Um, and that's a project-based learning school. Other things I'm involved in on campus include Beyond Arrest, Rethinking Systematic Oppression, CRIM's first pens, first and only criminal justice reform advocacy club, student organization. And so after that was founded by Madison Dawkins, I uh, was one of the founding board members who really built that up just to work both on Penn's campus around awareness and educating our peers, but then also with incarcerated people in the general area. We've worked with a lot who were formerly incarcerated and now working on movements such as trying to sort of eliminate some of the penalties in all of Pennsylvania around sort of ban-the-box policies, uh, Penn, Pennsylvania's terrible laws around life without parole. Um, and I'm also working right now um, kind of to go back to the school to prison pipeline and bridge the two and creating an organization that will sort of support, it's called Black Girl Linguists, and it will support trauma-enforced learning and culturally relevant education um, through language studies. Hi, I'm Carson. I'm a sophomore in the college. And uh, most of my work on campus centers around my involvement with the Penn Slavery Project uh, and sort of seeking to raise um, awareness in the conversation that Penn is having as well as other universities and taking reparative actions. Uh, I'm also involved with BARS and I've been involved with West Philadelphia Tutoring Project and some of the other um, education-based organizations on Penn's campus. Hi, I'm Ami. I'm a sophomore in the college and the two things that I'm involved in pertaining to social impact are one, Penn Slavery Project. I just started that this semester and two, Blackboard undergraduate consulting. All right. So what made you initially curious and want to get involved with the different organizations you're involved with now? I think for me, my freshman fall, I took a freshman seminar called Race, Crime, and Punishment. It was taught by Professor Marie Gottschalk, who's unfortunately on sabbatical this year, so <laughs> I feel bad for all the freshmen who don't have that particular experience. But I really credit that class with awakening a part of my political consciousness, just because a lot of the issues around the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, especially as it relates to juveniles, I had sort of seen growing up. I have those narratives in my own family as well. In, is like in the neighborhoods where I was living in um, and not 
by my high school where I was going to school. So I was kind of living this dual life where I kind of grew up one way and felt comfortable around certain kinds of people and neighborhoods. And yet I was always going to a school and I saw my path diverge from a lot of my peers. And I didn't really have a name for that. I didn't really have a way to contextualize that. And then by coming to Penn, taking that class, reading scholarship, seeing histories and context, I really realized the reality of school to prison pipelines. And I couldn't believe that it wasn't a term or an issue that I'd thought about before. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that kind of social justice work has really been playing catch up, trying to sort of eliminate a problem that I've seen and couldn't believe I wasn't addressing before. Can you explain for the audience who don't necessarily know and should be informed what the school to prison pipeline is? So the school to prison pipeline is the idea and, in my opinion, the very real concept that uh, a lot of schools across America, particularly public schools, particularly in low-income or urban areas, uh, have hyper-criminalization of their students. And so it really creates this path where students from a very young age, some of the highest actually in school arrest rates are in middle schools, um, and some of the highest suspension and expulsion rates are actually uh, pre that in kindergarten. So where students are penalized in the classroom for things like unruly behavior or not failing to pay attention uh, and their behavior isn't really thought of in the social context of what they're bringing with them when they come to school in terms of maybe adverse childhood experiences. And in fact, it's just penalized immediately. And so after that happens, um, they do those things, they get those in-school uh, suspensions or they become expelled. And sometimes there's even officers present in classrooms. A lot of students, especially in urban areas, have metal detectors or various things that really make the school itself seem like a prison already, but then they end up being picked up as juveniles into the system or they're kind of forced into a situation where they're dropping out, um, they're not seeing other avenues for them, and they wind up incarcerated even after the age of 18, but because of that foundation that was set in the school system. Thank you. I mean, I got started. <laughs> um, I credit a lot to my family. Um, you know, I come from a family of very like strong black women. And even though they didn't necessarily talk about the terms of like racism, sexism, or even like feminism, they never really said those terms out loud. It's because they were experiencing it. <laughs> you know, they don't really have to build a language for something that they're experiencing. Um, so I definitely knew that I wanted to continue the work. Because like for me, like black feminism is my thing. <laughs> you know, like, I love like supporting like black women. So like, for me, I really didn't, I wanted to do that in, like, every single aspect. <laughs> um, so I really just came to college with not so much, like, a focus, like, on exactly what I want to do, but which, I knew which population I wanted to help, you know, and, like, to want to continue to support. And so, like, when I found out that I could get, like, involved with, like, like volunteer with Why Not Prosper, like, I, like, jumped on that, like, immediately. And that's, like, been really awesome. And I feel as if, like, even in my other roles on campus, like, I'm on the board of, like, the Penn Association for Gender Equity, and I'm a pan like anti-violence educator like in those roles like I love like to push like an intersectional like lens like because you have to do that and like whatever activism space you're working in um yeah and so like, I just think like just because of my experience like as a black woman I really don't see like how else I couldn't you know, like how I couldn't have like been involved in these type of things yeah I think for me this interest definitely began at a young age because the elementary school that I went to was actually kind of civil rights themed so it was named um yeah it was called the ella baker school and it was named after Mm -hmm. this really huge activist during the civil rights movement that a lot of people actually didn't know about and so i kind of grew up learning about things like how important it is to recognize women in movements Mm -hmm. and thinking about like what is freedom who gets it in america who should have it in america everyone obviously but like (laughs) essentially having teachers teach me like my little five and six year old self those things from a super young age have kind of helped me 
I think, develop this passion of mine. And I think as I've gotten older, it's kind of manifested in different ways. So when I was younger, I thought that the way that I did social or the way that I made a social impact would be through law and education. But I think as I've gotten older, and I think a part of this is from being a Penn student, I see what a huge impact business and finance has on communities. And I think particularly as a black person who's from the Bronx, like I see firsthand the effects of what happens when people aren't really willing to invest in black communities. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I'm a part of the Black Warren Undergraduate Consulting Club because mm -hmm. we, what we do is, I don't know if I said this before, we essentially provide complementary consulting services to black owned businesses around Philadelphia. And I feel like it's so important to just help people kind of build up their businesses and, you know, be more financially independent because as of right now, black people in America have negative wealth on average, whereas that's not the case for white people. And I think like whatever small steps I can take to mend this huge discrepancy, like I'm super passionate about that. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Invest in black owned businesses. It's mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for me, my sort of interest in civic engagement probably stems from my parents. Um, like everyone said, I kind of definitely got interested in it at a young age, uh, but both of my parents have always been very civically engaged and minded, so talking about that at the dinner table and that kind of thing, um, and going with my parents either to volunteer or having them give me articles and stuff, uh, definitely inspired my twin sister and I to start sort of volunteering and thinking about organizations that we wanted to get involved in when we were in elementary school and middle school. Um, I come from definitely a pretty privileged background, and because of that, it was very easy uh, for me and for my peers, uh, students at my school and stuff, to kind of ignore a lot of greater issues that mm -hmm. we didn't witness on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so as I kind of grew up and started looking into social justice problems that I wasn't witnessing on a day-to-day -day basis, I developed an interest in sort of working with those causes. The education gap and the opportunity gap was something that when I was a high school student, I started reading books on and wanting to sort of help fix, uh, witnessed it in my own high school because my high school had a magnet program and a non-magnet mm -hmm. program and the ways that funds were being allotted and teaching resources and stuff. Um, once I started researching that within my own school, wrote an article for it on my school paper about this discrepancy even within our own campus, um, I started wanting to get more involved in looking at that, especially with younger students. So I started a club mentoring middle school girls. And I think that was kind of the start in freshman year of high school of wanting to really work with young women and reach young women. That's amazing, because in high school, um, I also started a club mentoring young girls, but from the aspect that, so my town is um, only 4% black, and wow. yeah, it's very white, but we do have a, um immigrant population specifically from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, and a lot of the girls in our school, I went to a charter school, would like sure it's a really great school and so on but a lot of the girls would be punished and have friday detention so i said okay instead of them going to detention have them come to like my club and mm -hmm. like i always provided food because everyone loves food <laughs> um and we would watch like netflix documentaries on different things to open their mind up and say like you guys have power to live your life and you guys are beautiful and amazing. Mm -hmm. The college counselor came to speak to them and these are like seventh and eighth, eighth graders, mm -hmm. but they still got to say like, hey, like I'm going to do it and 
get into college and be that nurse that I want to be and so on. So I think that was like great because I think it helped with discipline Mm -hmm. and kind of relating to school to prison pipeline in a way that instead of punishing them, tell them how to be better in this way and empower them because a lot of these girls aren't being told that they're they're that and they can do that and so on. Do you plan to pursue a career with the work that you're doing? Like how long-term after college, how does this extend? For me, I would say the answer is definitely. And I guess I say that with some hesitation because I don't really know exactly what I want to do after college. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people don't. But I know specifically that ideally it would be something within business or tech or maybe a combination of both fintech and with particular attention to how finance and money and capital, like the role that those things play in disadvantaged communities in America, particularly in black communities. So I don't really know what that would look like. I think as of right now, I could imagine doing maybe social impact investing, but that's kind of just getting started like a lot of people aren't really doing or talking about that right now but I totally see it getting bigger especially because I see that we have a whole office for that at Penn so like totally something I could look at later after college um besides that I'm not quite sure but definitely business and diversity some intersection between there um yeah I definitely want to go to law school after this um, and have my law, like, focus on, like, gender-related issues. And I, the reason why I've added, like, health and societies, like, my major cue is that because I want to, like, go into the more, like, legal side of reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Um, can and we get into that a bit on how mm-hmm. minority women can yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah, so, like, um, a few... I want to say a month ago I went to a doula training um and so doulas are like the like emotional like support givers of like pregnant persons and like the reason why I even like was interested in the first place is because I've been reading so much like how like black women I just have just not been listened to um like in like health spaces because like the health system you know it's fucked up um it's like like every other system that's like controlled by like um dominance of like white supremacy capitalism etc and so, like, seeing, like, all these cases of, like, black midwives and, like, black pregnant persons, like, talk about the way that they've been mistreated, like, really made me want to, like, see, like, how I can, like, do that, like, how I can combat that right now. So, like, I really love, like, the doula training I went through and, like, the program. It's, like, called, like, the Philadelphia Alliance for Labor Support. And it's on Penn's campus, like, if you want to get involved with it. Like, they love, like, they need to have undergraduates. Do they have a mm-hmm. Facebook that they that um, the audience can I think touch, so. or a website? Yeah, they have a website, definitely, okay. Yeah. Um, they have a website, yes, and I, th- yeah, and they have, like, trainings, I think, starting in January, like, if you want to be a doula, and it's, like, super cool, but, like, I think going to that training just, like, opened me up to, like, just, like, what I can do, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do on the legal side of things, like, I knew, um, I wanted something related to gender, but I think just, like, looking, like, to the way, like, you know, when people talk about reproductive health, they often only talk about, like, access to abortion, but there's, like, so much under that, you know, like, how, like, people like life is even being allowed to foster you know when someone does choose to carry out the term of their pregnancy you know because they're still like being mistreated due to their marginalized identities um so yeah I don't know exactly what specific I want to do um but I definitely want to like explore that more in my career yeah so I can like be yeah a- an advocate for those like marginalized voices like that often don't get respected in these spaces you know 
I'll say definitely for the third time. Uh, I'm in the process right now of sort of doing the junior year applications for all these fellowships. So I have a lot of very specific plans that I tried to argue just now. So, <laughs> I mean, for me, I also want to go to law school. I don't want to go straight through. So mm -hmm. I see myself definitely working with more of a grassroots organization or teaching in a school. I just want more of that context. Because do you want to do Teach for America? I've considered it. I worked for Teach for America on this campus all oh. last year as one of the campus recruiters. And oh. so they're... There are a lot of pros and cons to every organization, and so I definitely hear some of the negative ideas around Teach for America, but for me, the prevailing message I got out of working for the organization is that if you're a naysayer or a person who doesn't like the organization, it's probably you that should be doing the teaching and not the people that you're mad at <laughs> who are doing the teaching. So people that come from marginalized backgrounds, mm -hmm. people that can identify, um, people that have maybe had some of those teachers, the best thing that you can do like to help the organization because it's going to continue on is to just become one of those teachers and be better than anybody that you ever had. Mm -hmm. So I can see myself doing that. Uh, and then after law school, similarly to Madison, I want to study something around social change. So whether that be a specific law and social change track or a civil rights track, um, after I get out of law school, I want to work um, litigating civil rights cases. Mm -hmm. So I can do a lot of that around education organizations like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, for example, is one that I just recently wrote about wanting to work for. So um, there are a lot of good connections there. For example, Penn Law just had um, their annual public interest week, and I work there as my work-study job. And um, Sharon Fell, who's currently the executive director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, was on this campus. She was talking to students. So wow. I feel like that's one of the ways where if you get involved and you want to be involved in these things on Penn's campus, there's so many opportunities to take mm -hmm. advantage of that now to sort of start planning. I wouldn't have previously known that I wanted to work for this organization had I not kind of seen her know that she was speaking um, and been able to do more research on that. And then long term, I see myself um, potentially working for the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that there is a lot that can be done in terms of preventative guidelines around education. And while I do think that sometimes at the local or state level, you can be more effective, especially as administrations change so frequently. I think that if I could get kind of the contextual experience litigating civil rights cases, have some of the in-classroom experience, having been a teacher or been somebody really proximate to the education sphere, that I would hopefully be able to use those tools and that knowledge to create some kind of la like long-lasting solutions um, around kind of what I was talking about before in terms of trauma-enforced learning. So that's kind of the goal, uh, my long career path. I don't know exactly how I'm going to get everywhere I'm going to get, but <laughs> I do believe that to be fulfilled, I'll, I'll have to be working around these issues. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I'll also say definitely. Um, I don't have a 100% clear plan for after graduation, but I think definitely law school. Um, but I'm also kind of thinking about maybe pursuing a doctorate. But I think that uh, there's there's just so many, yeah, you're going to have to edit this out. I'm sorry. I was trying, no, to, I was trying to think of what I was going to say, and I just, um, you got this. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think I'm really interested in civil rights law and especially education law. Um, one thing that matters to me a lot, because I've seen it a lot in my own community, going to school in the South, is school segregation and the ways that uh, school succession, which is when small factions break off and create their own school districts. It's completely drawn on racial lines, like small white communities. And it happens across the country, uh, everywhere from Boston to Alabama, um, California, where small communities will break off, form their own school district, and take a large amount of the tax base with mm -hmm. it, which then impoverishes other communities further and just completely solidifies the 
racial divide and opportunity gap in public schools. Uh, so I really would like to fight that because it certainly contributes to the school-to-prison pipeline, which is something that matters to me a lot. So I could see myself maybe uh, suing racist schools. Um, <laughs> but I think that I'm also really interested in um, criminal justice reform. So I would love to also work for a grassroots organization. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my family friends actually graduated from here and after graduation worked for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and now she's in law school so studying civil rights law and she loves it. Uh, and I got coffee with her a couple months ago and she was saying that she loves what she's doing but every day has to make a choice mm -hmm. to stay with it because it is really hard work mm -hmm. and it's hard um, to know that she's not making as much money as some of her peers and stuff. Um, but that every day when she's working, like she worked in a public defender's office this summer, seeing both the pitfalls of the system and where she feels like she can help fight it and seeing what she can do when she does get involved is really gratifying. And so I hope that I can do something similar to that. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. All right. Um, what are your thoughts on Frenchification? I know this is like switching topics. <laughs> um but I just, I want to know. And if, if, for those of you who aren't necessarily at Penn or who are at Penn and don't really know what gentrification is, you should. It's Penn gentrifying the local West Philadelphia community. It's been happening for a really long time now. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I think all four of us, we participated in Penn Corps. Um, it's one of the pre-orientation programs that focuses on like community engagement. And one of the things I like loved about the program was that it was very like as soon as we got on campus, it talked about petrification and talked about like what our presence at the school and like working in the community outside of the school, like what it means, you know. And I was like actually talking about like gentrification a few days ago in one of my classes, and someone like in the class that I was talking to, they're like, "I do think like Penn has gentrified." And I'm like, "Yes, you know, like it's so sad, <laughs> it, but it's like really so sad, like how people, like you know, like, we like, become so like." just in this, like, bubble of privilege <laughs> that we don't remember, like, what it took Penn to get the campus that it has now. You know, like, this was a whole community, like, all Locust Walk was a public street, you know? Like, it was a community before these buildings took place, you know? And I think people just, like, don't think about that too much, you know? Like, think about, like, what it, like, what it doesn't mean that Penn doesn't pay it ta its taxes, you know? It's not only, like, taking up, like, space. Like, now it's, like, not even, like, funding the, like, the little space, you know, like, helping those spaces like thrive you know yeah I think to that yeah. point I mean we've been talking about how I mean obviously Penn could do more but in terms of school systems not paying property taxes and being one of the exactly. largest mm -hmm. property owners in <laughs> the city <laughs> I wonder what that does to get the public school system but mm -hmm. also to that point I'm working on a project right now actually with Seoul which is Students Organizing for Unity and Liberation mm -hmm. um, the new NAACP chapter that came back at Penn, as well as Umoja, who's the umbrella organization for black student groups. And basically, we're trying to erect a historical marker. We want to start with one. Many would be great, but, you know, you got to start with one um, to basically celebrate and sort of acknowledge a lot of what's been there before. Mm -hmm. So, like, as Madison spoke about, there, there was Locust Street. There were mm -hmm. also a lot of mom-and-pop shops. Mm -hmm. There were neighborhoods. There were a lot of features that are no longer there and that displacement has largely been seen by the university as just sort of a side effect of educational mm -hmm. expansion mm -hmm. which 
while that may be true and you can frame it that way, is not the reality. And so the goal of a historical marker is both to sort of say to the local community, Penn recognizes its footprint, but also to force Penn students to not be in their bubble. To mm-hmm. I want it to be on Locust Walk, on College mm-hmm. Green, ideally. So you can't walk through campus without acknowledging that there were, there were people here before us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that recognition of footprint is just so important. And, for example, we were, we were meeting with the university archivist, um, a couple weeks ago, and there there is a book that he, Mark Lloyd, and John Pluckett, who's worked with uh, the Graduate School of Education here at Penn, have put out, and it was published by the University Press, that is a really good sort of history of everything that was here before. And so mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, Penn indirectly has acknowledged this history, but it's just not publicized enough. Yeah. And I think the first step, I mean, the ultimate step is, you know, pay some taxes, pay some pilots. <laughs> but <laughs> the ultimate, like, the first step to get to that ultimate goal is just to acknowledge that there there has been something here that we need to talk about. And once we start talking about it, we can talk about how to remedy it. But I just think that the biggest problem is we're not talking about it, especially not at the highest levels of the administration. Mm-hmm. I think another thing, too, with pentrification that is not talked about when we discuss it is that Penn obtained all of this land through eminent domain, mm. which means that the university said to the state that its expansion would be for public good and therefore they could seize the land. So people whose homes were erased, mom and pop shops were erased, it was taken. Mm -hmm. I mean, Penn paid for it, but they did not buy the land from them. It it was not for sale. Penn came in and said, we want to build this here. Mm -hmm. And because Penn is considered, quote unquote, a charitable organization because it's a nonprofit, the state allowed that and they took land. It was not. It was not ever for sale. Penn did not really offer these people you know, to purchase. It mm-hmm. was eminent domain. It was seized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's another important aspect of it. And then going back even further, uh, one of our professors, Margaret Natalie Crawford, uh, used to teach at Cornell, and she was talking about how the president of Cornell used to start every major speech by reminding the entire audience that they were on stolen land mm-hmm. um, from Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that. I don't know if I could see Amy Gutman doing that, but <laughs> that regardless of what the topic was, regardless of if it was a graduation, convocation, whatever it was, he would immediately remind everyone in the audience where they were. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is another important conversation that we're also not having. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, in talking about markers and stuff, that's also really important. Mm-hmm. Can you guys speak about the Penn Slavery Project? Because I know you guys mentioned it, but... Yeah, uh, so the Penn Slavery Project started in the fall of last year, uh, undergraduate-led project under Professor Kathleen Brown in the History Department. And uh, the initial goal of the project was to examine the ways in which Penn's history was uh, tied to slavery. And in the past, Penn has given multiple statements to not only the DP, but also other press organizations claiming, quote, there's no trace of slavery in Penn's DNA. Uh, also, another article said, quote, all clear. Uh, so when the project started, the goal was kind of to debunk that. Uh, we started by examining trustees and found that of the 28 trustees we looked at, over 20 definitively owned enslaved people. Uh, but in the semester since, we've expanded our research to look at not only the ways in which early benefactors of the university owned enslaved people and benefited from the slave trade, but also the ways that Penn itself uh, produced structures of knowledge that influenced pro-slavery rhetoric across the um, American South. So all of our research focuses on the medical school, 
which is the first medical school in the country. Mm-hmm. And it was the center of what's called the American School of Ethnology, which is essentially all the racial pseudoscience bullshit that you read. <laughs> Hopefully it was in you know high school textbooks, but all of that was centered at Penn. It started mm-hmm. here. Uh, tons of professors taught courses on racial difference yeah. and also collected anatomical specimens that we believe came from enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And the, like, the work I... I do with the slavery project. The reason I love it so much is like we talked about this in class a few days ago. Like, can we necessarily call this a history project when so many of the remnants of slavery are like still persist in our society? And so, you know, I've talked about earlier like how I want to get into like reproductive health. Um, and like it's funny because I like really wanted my like work with the slavery project to be like something w- dealing with like gender and sexuality of it all. And so I'm like sort of investigating <laughs> investigating like the first graduate of the Penn Medical School. Because, like, he did, like, perform gynecological work <laughs> on enslaved women. And, like, it's just, like, like to see that, like, be, you know, like, like the first, like, woman's hospital was on a plantation, you know, like, to help, like, boost the reproductive health of these enslaved women, like, once the actual, like, transatlantic, like, slave trade ended, you know, because they couldn't get any more slaves, so now they had to make sure that they were producing, you know? And so, like, it's, like, sort of, like, ties back to, like, the current day, you know, like, mistreatment of black women, like, you know, in, like, these, like, maternal wards, you know, like, mm. like, just see, like, just, like, like, hearing about, like, the work he performed and, like, how it was, like, so cruel, you know? And, like, just seeing, like, how it's, like, still hasn't really changed at all, you know? And it's, like, really sad, but it just, like, shows that, like, we haven't really progressed that much. Like, we've, like, changed some labels and, like, maybe, like, changed the appearance of it all. Like, nothing has happened, like, radical enough to debase us, like, from that history. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like, as we all know, America has a really big problem acknowledging its past Mm -hmm. with slavery. And I think we see that on Penn's campus. So, yeah, we've gotten to the point where we've shown that Penn, in fact, does have a history with slavery. But there are so many aspects of slavery that, as you said, still Mm -hmm. remain today. For example, there is a statue of a slave owner in the quad. Me, a black person, lived in the quad. is it the Curtis... Taylor, he's the big no, one George with the Wilson. hand that's like oh. held up, and he's like yeah. he low key looks like he's about to whip you. Yeah, but it's actually oh. like he's holding a Bible. Wow. That's a full slave owner. Like there yeah. are mm-hmm. buildings in the quad named right. after slave owners, and mm-hmm. so I just want to know why in 2018 is it okay mm-hmm. to have buildings and monuments that are meant to honor these people mm-hmm. who clearly have no regard for human life? Like it's embarrassing, yeah. honestly, and I yeah. feel like even to be in 2018 like there are other schools who have like for example we saw with Yale they had a building mm-hmm. named after Calhoun that building is no no longer named after Calhoun mm-hmm. so why do we still have these remnants of slavery on our campus and then even beyond statues monuments buildings I think we also need to talk more about what that means for Penn students and the Philadelphia community at mm-hmm. large so for example there are schools within a two-mile radius of Penn where students have no idea how to do algebra despite being in the 11th grade mm-hmm. and I think it's not out of this world or it's not unrealistic to say that that has some ties to slavery. Like Mm -hmm. if you've been denied education for so long and like your people have been oppressed for hundreds and hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, you're going to see the ramifications of that. And so I just Mm -hmm. feel like one, like, I don't know if I should say this, so potentially edit this out, but I'm thinking about reparations. Yeah. So we have, I mean, I think one thing that with Penn is, so honestly fucked up is that the university has this very very singular idea of what slavery looks like in america Mm -hmm. and says you know that doesn't apply to us and even though we've 
some of our research has proved that even their very narrow perception of what slavery looked like yeah. did in fact happen at Penn. But on a larger scale, I mean, the knowledge that was being produced, everything you know, Madison was just talking about, just because Penn's narrative does not resemble that of Georgetown, which Georgetown published a list. They have 272 names of enslaved people mm-hmm. who were sold into Louisiana mm-hmm. um, in 1832 to pay off the university's debts. You know, that looks different than Penn's history. It does not mean that Penn is in the quote all clear. Mm-hmm. And I think that just because Penn doesn't have that list of 272 names actually puts Penn in a really unique position to take reparative action. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't necessarily descendants that we can reach out to, but I think that that means that we should be taking reparative action within the Philadelphia community mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just recruiting you know, black students from across America at mm-hmm. you know, even higher rates. I think that just because it Penn doesn't look like UVA, doesn't look like Georgetown, you know, does not exempt Penn from taking reparative action and making it, I think, stronger than even what Georgetown did in mm-hmm. the wake of publishing uh, its findings. Yeah, I totally agree because I feel like just because slaves did not build the buildings on Penn's campus, labor that was completed by slave bodies, like the money that came from their labor was used to fund this university. Mm-hmm. And so Penn very much so owes someone. Mm-hmm. We don't know who. That's kind of a part of what our research is. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll figure that out. Maybe we won't. But mm-hmm. Penn did not become Penn on its own, mm-hmm. and it certainly didn't become Penn without putting black people down. So mm-hmm. what are we going to do about it? <laughs> well, thank you guys for sharing. And I'm going to wrap this up with asking each of you to tell the audience what way they can create impact, whether at Penn or in their communities and so on. Honestly, I feel like this is kind of not really a common opinion, but if you're a person who really cares about social impact slash you're a person from a marginalized background, like you're a woman, you're a woman of color, like get into business, be a CEO, like even if you're not necessarily doing diversity work, just showing millions and millions of little black kids and people who look like you across the country that they can do those things is super impactful. Also, I think I'm a very big proponent of just, you know, getting a seat at the table. And so I feel like a part of the reason why we have so many problems in America is because we don't have people in power or in positions of power looking out for everyone's best interest. And so granted, if you're a baby boomer white man and you're leading a huge fortune 500 company maybe you're only worrying about other baby boomer white men surprise surprise <laughs> so like let's get other people in positions yeah. of power whether you're a ceo a president like you can be doing things for other people in ways that a lot of people don't expect i totally think that it's super duper impactful and important to do things like education and law but mm-hmm. i think i'm also a very big proponent of whether we like it or not money rules the world unfortunately and power kind of is derived from money so if it has to go somewhere why not into our own communities Mm -hmm. and that's true because you even just a quick caveat on that like with the h&m and the monkey thing Mm -hmm. you have to like what was that advertisement marketing team thinking well there's probably not a black person sitting there there when (laughs) that decision was made so Mm -hmm. just that's a big thing yeah yeah um, yeah, I would definitely just say, like, yeah, educate yourself. Because, like, that's, like, the first step of it all. Um, and I think just, like, remain cognizant of your identity and, like, how your identity affects, like, the way you move about the world and, like, how people see you. Um, 
especially like when you're because like I think like the education point is like so important because so many people have asked me to educate them <laughs> and like that's exhausting and it's also like do you not realize that I didn't come out the womb like this you know like I like also had to educate myself you know like and it's like the first like thing you should really be doing if you want to get involved at all because like we all have access to Google like we're at Penn you know <laughs> go to the library like go to Van Pelt Van Pelt um you know just like start with that so that you know like, what you can do further and like other than that like really just be there like for the people in your life you know who come to you like saying like that they're exhausted you know saying like want to talk about the, like microaggressions or like macroaggressions that they're mm. dealing with um and also like on the sexual violence note, like just be a bystander like just make sure you know like everyone you're like who's around you like is safe you know and like consent consent is key consent is, <laughs> is key. mandatory you know <laughs> exactly so like just like you can do so many little things like that don't have to be like huge like ways of activism like there's just so many ways like to support the people in your life right now and I guess I'll say, because I echo everything they just said, to add, if you are the person who's like, but I want to do something tangible, like I just want to make an impact, what do I do? I think that the first question you have to ask yourself is, what do I care about? Mm-hmm. Because like everything is wrong with the world. Like, there, <laughs> like there, there are so many problems, and they're not at all limited to the stuff that we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very inauthentic, and it just it just won't be as effective for you mm-hmm. to think like, oh, this issue seems big. Let me do something about that. Just figure out like what drives you, what keeps you awake at night, what kind mm-hmm. of articles do you always click on, like what kind of talks do you always gravitate toward, and around that then I would just echo their advice get educated on the issue figure out if there are already people doing what you're mm-hmm. doing because you don't have to reinvent the wheel you can get involved <laughs> exactly. in something that already exists mm-hmm. and then once you know more then you might find ways to innovate so I would really say just like tap into yourself figure out what you care about once you figure that out identify people that can help educate you so and that doesn't mean like Madison said going up to your like nearest neighborhood black person or like nearest neighborhood woman or like whatever group that you think you're trying to help it just means that if there are people that want to do the work and they're mm-hmm. specifically educating others listen to them figure out what you can learn more about and then do something to help the world i mean i think on penn's campus and just in philadelphia in general there's so many amazing organizations mm-hmm. and most of them want your help i think one key thing is when you go to get involved in an organization yeah you don't have to reinvent the wheel <laughs> saying how can i help you mm-hmm. i care about this issue you can learn so much just from watching and working alongside or working under people who have been invested in this issue, whatever it may be, for you know, longer than you have, that kind of thing. I think there's Penn can be, feel so competitive sometimes. There's this want to found the club, to mm-hmm. you know, be the leader, to be in charge. And I think one important thing is realizing that you don't always have to be, maybe you shouldn't always be mm-hmm. the person who claims credit for something that being, that being an active supporter is really as important as being the president of that club or whatever it may be. Um, I think there, I mean, there's hundreds of student organizations and there's so many nonprofits in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I think that figuring out where your interests lie and then finding out how you can support these organizations is really a key first step. And even if that means like sending an email or stopping by and saying, hey, I'd like to get involved is a fantastic first step. And yeah. Very true. And my piece of advice hearsay or whatever you want to call it (laughs) is that there are different ways that you can integrate like your interests Mm -hmm. into um what you want to do to better the world so when i'm back home i volunteer at like the soup kitchen with my family and family friends and we do that and i volunteered at um sunday 
breakfast mission, which is also a soup kitchen in like center Philadelphia. And that's like also amazing. And then also you can work at a comp. A lot of companies I think are trying to, they know they have an issue and they're trying to better that. So there's whole like um, departments that are focused on integrating with the community. I know Viacom has like a public relations department and that's basically working with like nonprofits to better um, what they're doing and their impact. And then this summer I also interned at a nonprofit back home that was like super amazing, worked with children, first generation and low income children. And that's just amazing. And um, one of the other interns is working on marketing in that nonprofit. So you can do a lot and have it, um, the intersection is like so immense. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys for coming in and speaking oh, on thank you. Thank you. all the yes. lovely things you're doing. Um, <laughs> peace and love. We would like to thank Nick Seymour and Kelly's Writer's House, um, Nick for engineering this episode, and Kelly's Writer's House for giving us the Wexler Studios. Mm -hmm.